Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen. This week we'll be looking at Kerrang! Issue number 600, June the 8th, 1996, pence. That's right, it's episode... It's not episode, it's issue 600 of Kerrang! It's episode 23 for the year, but that doesn't matter so much, does it? So this is a special 600th issue. I'll be honest with you, there's not actually a ton going on that I can really read out on the podcast about the 600th issue. So there is a bit, um, which is uh, including uh, Lars Ulrich from Metallica talking about all the times Metallica were on the cover of Kerrang! So that's, that's actually quite interesting. That's part of my plan for this week. Uh, there's other bits where famous people have written faxes to Kerrang! Just saying congratulations on 600. Not that interesting to read out. Another bit is pictures of um, people that have been in Kerrang and how they looked, you know, back in the day when they were first in Kerrang. Again, it's more of a visual one rather than an audio one. So I won't be reading that one out. And there's also a big celebrity hit list. Um, The last 599 issues of Kerrang would not have been possible without the following 600 people. So they list 600 people. And obviously, I'm not going to read that out because it's in a tiny font and it will probably take me most of the podcast. There's also a Euro 96 bit, which has nothing to do with um, Kerrang having 600 issues, but that one's quite interesting, so I'll be reading that out. Anyway, let's crack on. So, the cover stars for the special 600th issue. Who do you think's on the cover to celebrate 600 issues of Kerrang? Obviously, it's Bon Jovi. World exclusive, Bon Jovi interviews Def Leppard. 12-page star-studded pullout, Metallica and a cast of thousands celebrate Kerrang 600. Terrorvision, righty hospital drama. Pearl Jam, new LP exclusive, rancid, if it wasn't for punk, we'd be in jail. And Gazza will shine, Manix, Reef, Ash and Moore on Euro 96. If you would like to get in contact with us here at Kerrang Back Issues, we can be contacted via Instagram, Kerrang Back Issues, Twitter, Kerrang Pod, and email kerrangbackissues at gmail.com. If you would like to leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Music, please go ahead and do that. Please leave us a nice review. If you want to leave us a bad one, then send me a message and tell me why. And uh, maybe we can have a chat about it. (laughs) Or or just don't leave me a a bad review because that's not not very nice, is it? I don't do this podcast to get anything from it. There's no advertising. I do it because I love it. And if you don't like it, well, I don't know why you're listening. You weird. Actually says more about you than it does me if you're listening and you don't like it. Unless you're one of those sadists who um, likes to follow stuff that makes them really angry and hates it. Fair enough. Do you know what? We've all got our crosses to bear and we've all got to get through this life in whichever way is possible. Either way, I hope you're here because you enjoy the podcast. I enjoy doing it. I absolutely love going back through these old kerangs. Um, it, it really, you know, I, I talk about this periodically. I still really, really enjoy it. Uh, sometimes, obviously, it's a little tricky to fit it into my life because it's a weekly podcast, which does mean, you know, it takes time out of my week where I really have to put some time aside. Um, you know, I've come in from the sun, uh, the lovely, lovely sunshine we're having in England to come and do a bit of this podcast, um, maybe the intro and some of the news. So, you know, I do take time out of my life to do this and uh, I enjoy it. It's worth it, you know, it's absolutely worth it. Also. When I was in Vietnam earlier on in the year, I was in the sun for about three or four hours and I got unbelievable heat stroke. That's because the UV was uh, extreme, which we don't usually get in the UK. I was your classic Brit abroad. It got sunstroke after being in the sun for three or four hours. And I'm not that pale, to be honest. Um, 
Irish background and that. So yeah, I do have sort of whitish skin, but I'm not, I'm not completely pale. You know, I'm, I'm usually out in the sun. So yeah, for that to happen to me, pretty bad, to be honest. So I had three hours in the sun today and I bought myself in just to, you know, be sensible because you have to be sensible in the sun. Anyway, enough of my inane wittering. Let's crack on with this week's episode of the podcast. So this issue of Kerrang! was created with the following stimulants. Ludicrously exciting live shows from Curb Dog, Everclear, The Manics and Ash. Free vodka. Non-stop playing of the new Metallica album. Deputy editor Mike Peake's suave new Mexican waiter hairdo. The long-awaited appearance of Summer. Phone calls from old matey in order. Oceans of booze at the Prodigy secret party to launch the new Tarantino movie. Shagging. Chesterfield cigarettes. Angus. Keanu Reeves bike riding skills. Death threats from skin fans. And Jason Arnop's knackered mobile phone. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And we start this week where we always begin news. Pearl Jam are finishing work on their fourth album at guitarist Stone Gossard's Litho Studio in Seattle and it may be in your record shop within a couple of months. The band have recorded more than 20 songs since the release of their last album Vitology two years ago and are now choosing the best tracks for the new LP. Bassist Jeff Ament speaking exclusively to Kerrang says the record will definitely be out this year. We're in the process of picking out 12 or 13 of the songs. Eddie is at home right now working on the cover artwork with a couple of people that I run a graphic design company with. The record will probably be out late summer or early autumn. Sources at the band's record company Epic even suggest that the album might be out as soon as late July. The album will be the first to feature new drummer Jack Irons who cut his teeth with LA superstars the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Says Jeff, this record's another departure for us. I think Jack added his own trip to it. He initiated some of the songs. He had some very definite, almost drum songs. Um, we actually wrote some songs over a couple of those pieces. We recorded some songs in Chicago, some in Atlanta, a couple of things in New Orleans. We did the Vitology album completely that way, all over the place. But this time around, the main body of the album was recorded at Stone Studio in Seattle. I don't know yet what the album's going to be called. I've got some song titles, but you know, Eddie changes them all the time. There's a song called Hail Hell. There's another called Red Mosquito. But I don't know if either of these will make it onto the album. Spoiler. They both made it onto the album. It's almost three years since Pearl Jam last played the UK. Will the new album finally bring the band back here? Yes, says Jeff. I guarantee that we'll play the UK in the next 10 months. Probably sooner rather than later. Over the winter, we'll follow the weather around. If it's nice uh, long enough, we'll do the east coast of the States and then head over to Europe for a month. Then we'll be off to South America and Australia again. Reports from the States suggest that Pearl Jam might start their latest round of touring commitments with a special fan club only show during the summer at the 60,000 capacity Giant Stadium in New Jersey, although this is yet to be confirmed. But what is certain is that Pearl Jam will have a song on the Surfrider Foundation charity compilation album Mum, Music for Our Mother Ocean due for release in the States on July 2nd. The Seattle superstars have recorded a version of the song Grammy Out of Control, originally recorded by obscure US surf band The Silly Surfers in 1964. The track was chosen by guitarist Mike McCready, who came across it at the back of his record collection. Also donating tracks to the album A Silver Chair, Everclear and Helmet. Def Leppard drummer Rick Allen faces the possibility of spending up to a year in prison when he goes on trial in Los Angeles later this month on a charge of spousal abuse. 
Alan was arrested last July at Terminal 5 in LAX Airport after allegedly attacking his wife Stacy Laurie in the ladies' toilet. It is even alleged that he tried to strangle her. After the incident, Stacy refused to press charges and everyone in the leopard camp assumed the whole thing had blown over. But under Californian law, the County of Los Angeles can bring charges against anyone arrested for spousal abuse, even without the alleged victim's cooperation. Alan's case will be heard at the Los Angeles Municipal Court on June 26 when the drummer intends to enter a plea of not guilty. If he is found guilty of the charge, Alan could be sentenced to up to 12 months in prison. Dog Eat Dog had been caught assaulting a car with a chainsaw and using it as a sandboard. However, at the New York Funko Band have not been indulging in criminal vandalism. They were wielding the chainsaw in the promo video for their forthcoming new single, Isms, which is due for release through Roadrunner on July the 1st. The video was filmed out in the Arizona desert and features Dog Eat Dog slicing the roof off of a car, tying it to the car's tow bar and then using it to sandboard across the desert. If fans buy the ISM single on the first day of release at any of the network chain of 150 independent record stores across the country, they will get a copy and a special first day cover sleeve. Advanced orders for this limited edition pack can also be placed. There will also be a first day cover version of the new Dog Eat Dog album Play Games available on the first day of release, July the 15th. If you want to hear ISMs before anyone else, you can catch it being played now at the following rock clubs. London Borderline Astoria, Camden Palace, Bradford Rios, Glasgow Cat House, Edinburgh Music Box, Bristol Beer Keller, Newcastle Mayfair, Sheffield Drop, Buckley Tivoli, Manchester Rockwell, Midland XLs and Exposure Rock Cafes. Doggy Dog will be appearing on the main stage of the Reading Festival on August 23rd. The Manic Street Preachers, who have just finished a sellout tour of the UK, have now confirmed 13 more shows for the autumn. The dates are Newcastle City Hall October 7th, Leeds Town & Country 8th, Southampton Guildhall 10th, Cambridge Corn Exchange 11, Aston Villa Leisure Centre 12th, Sheffield City Hall 14th, Blackburn King George's Hall 15th, Hull City Hall 17th, Carlisle Sand Centre 18th, Liverpool Royal Court 19th, Exeter University 21st, Hanley Victoria Hall 22nd and Leicester De Montford Hall on the 23rd. Tickets come on sale from June the 9th, they cost £10. The Mannix will also be making two festival appearances this summer, at Glasgow Tea in the Park on July 14th and the Phoenix Festival five days later. The band will release a new single, Everything Must Go, through Epic to coincide with these appearances. This is, of course, the title track of the band's current album. The Wild Hearts follow up their recent top 20 hit Sick of Drugs with the release of a new single, Red Light, Green Light, on June 17th. Taken from their current album, Fishing for Luckies, the single will be released on the band's own round records label in free format, CD, cassette and 7-inch, and features three new tracks. Got It on Tuesday, Do Anything, The British All-American Homeboy Crowd. The Wild Hearts are currently supporting ACDC on their British and European tour. The remaining UK dates are Birmingham NEC June 17th, Manchester Ninex Arena 19th, London Wembley Arena on 21st and 22nd. Terrorvision were forced to cancel shows in Italy and Germany after their singer Tony Wright broke both angles jumping over a wall. Wright landed awkwardly after making the jump and had to be flown back to England for treatment. But he's still in good spirits. Bones heal and chicks dig scars, he jests. The band will be back in action at the Phoenix Festival on July 21st and they'll release a new single Bad Actress through Total Vegas EMI on July the 8th. 
Rage Against the Machine have attacked the forthcoming US presidential election claiming that the two major political parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, offer no choice to the American public. Speaking to Kerrang, guitarist Tom Morello says, What passes for democracy here is an electoral choice between two representatives of the privileged class. Rage recently made a public statement of their disgust with the whole election process in the US when they made a controversial appearance on the top-rated American TV show Saturday Night Live and draped their equipment with inverted American flags. The band were booked to play two numbers on the program, but the show's producers, angered at the political protest, stopped Rage from playing their second song. An official spokesman for Saturday Night Live claimed this was due to the program overrunning, but an angry Morello insists we were censored. Saturday Night Live is supposedly this cutting-edge show, but they proved they're cowards. NBC, the station which produces the program, is owned by General Electric, a major manufacturer of planes for the US Air Force. No wonder they didn't want a band like us to play. Morello maintains that draping their equipment with inverted flags was not only their way of protesting at the forthcoming US elections, but also at the choice of right-wing politician and billionaire Steve Forbes as the show's co-host. It seems freedom of expression in America only works so long as you don't upset a corporate sponsor, continues Morello. But thankfully, some of the cast of Saturday Night Live have expressed solidarity with our actions and a sense of shame that the show had censored our performance. Rage will be returning to the UK on August 23rd to headline the first night of the Reading Festival. American news. We start this week with Don Kay in New York. How the mighty have fallen. Former Judas Priest and fight vocalist Rob Halford came to New York last week for a show at Irving Plaza introducing his new band imaginatively titled Halford. The band consisted of unknowns and provided Halford with a backdrop of industrial music in the vein of Nine Inch Nails. Rob has already demoed an album's worth of material and does not have a US deal so far. And the packed house at the plaza did not respond favorably to Rob's latest attempt to keep up with the times. In fact, they nearly booed the band off the stage, actually going so far as to hold garbage at them during several points in the show. To make matters worse, Black Sabbath icon Tony Iommi was scheduled to appear and never did, leaving Halford and his band to stumble through covers of Paranoid and Nativity in Black. In all, not a good night for Halford. It's sad, but someone has to say it. Having attempted a Pantera-type sound on the first Fight album, a walk into the waters of grunge on the second, and now a new band trying to latch on to the Nine Inch Nails ministry bandwagon, it seems that one of my favourite all-time singers has lost his way. Get back to your roots, Rob. Rumour has it that Penthouse magazine's owner, Bob Guccione, not only has a video of Pamela Anderson Lee having sex with her husband, Tommy, but he's also got a tape of Pamela in the sack with ex-boyfriend Brett Michaels of Poison. Just leaves you wondering what's coming next. The Pammy in the Sack box set. Word from the West Coast is that Fresh Metal Veterans Testament have finally called it a day. The reason given is that the band members felt the Testament name, image and sound has pretty much reached the end of the line in these anti-metal days. Singer Chuck Billy, guitarist Eric Peterson and recently recruited drummer Chris Contos at Machine Head will stick together in a new as yet unnamed outfit. Next up we join Lisa Johnson in LA. The Flaming Lips conquered Los Angeles when they headlined three sold-out shows at Hollywood Moguls, boasting a brilliantly over-the-top Christmas light show and dragging out a host of celebrity fans. Enjoying the splendour of the Lips were action hero Keanu Reeves, whose own band Dogstar are due to hit the UK for two shows next month, 
Guitarist Dave Navarro at the Red Hot Chili Peppers, members of Tool, who are working on a new album somewhere in LA and Failure. Expect a new album from them soon titled Fantastic Planet. They were also members of up-and-coming LA bands such as Lutefisk, Drill Team and Red Five in attendance. Oddest sighting of the week must have been Sex Pistols drummer Paul Cook at a Super Suckers show at the Roxy on Sunset Strip. Apparently Cook spent the whole night at a corner table with former Blondie guitarist Frank Infante. So what's Cook doing in town? Apparently he's here with the Pistols as they rehearse for their imminent world tour. Slash made an appearance last week on Roseanne's new TV comedy show Saturday Night Special, a rival to Saturday Night Live. Playing himself, Slash tries to get a table at a trendy restaurant but is faced with a hostess who is a real pain in the ass. Remember me, she asks. I was the one in the front row. I lifted up my top. The hostess goes on to insult Slash's date for the night, making lewd comments about her. Hey, that's my publicist, protests Slash. This is a business dinner. Although not known for his acting ability, Slash coped reasonably well, but he did find it hard to keep a straight face. And finally this week we join Kevin Roberts in Seattle. If you long to check out gigs in Seattle but can't afford the airfare, you can now beam yourself live into one of the city's hippest and most happening clubs, Mo, via the internet. Using the latest computer technology, most of the concerts from the Capitol Hill venue are being transmitted live online across the world. Be warned though, this will mean you'll need to tune in at around 6am British time to catch them, and you'll only get sound transmission, so you won't be able to actually see any bands. Check the forthcoming schedule via the World Wide Web at www.imusic.com. Also getting a little action in on the side is Tad Doyle, who's been getting back into the fray following the dismissal of Tad the band from the East West roster. Although Tad are still apparently going strong, Mr Doyle has teamed up with ex-Black Flag member Des Kadena and former Firehose Minutemen drummer George Hurley to form Boner. The bone-crunching trio recently played alongside Seven Year Bitch, and the dancing French liberals at the OK Hotel. Both Kadena and Hurley have also been spending time with a band called Vida, who are inspired by the likes of late guitar genius Jimi Hendrix, classic American hard rockers Blue Oyster Cult, and oddball British New Wavers Wire. As the old saying goes, you can never be too thin or too rich, and if you're in Seattle, you can never be in too many bands. Former Malfunction Brad member Reagan Hagar, currently drumming with Satchel and also heavily involved with Stone Gossard's Loose Groove label, is the latest to take part in a little side project action, forming a new heavy metal band called Meth Lab. This four-piece also features his Satchel partners John Hoag and Corey Kane guitar and bass respectively, plus vocalist Carrie Eklund, who has just finished working with Pearl Jam bassist Jeff Amem on his Free Fish project. Meth Lab are described by Hagar's Loose Groove colleague Shelley Gossard, who also happens to be Stone's sister as an out-and-out -out metal band. They recently performed at the Showbox in Seattle at the record release party for the smart new Devilhead album, Pest Control. Let's go to work. To celebrate 600 issues of Kerrang, we've recruited a new writer. His name's John Bon Jovi, and he's got Def Leppard's Joe Elliott to pop down to his Malibu beach pad for an interview. The sun's out, the surf's up, and two of the biggest rock stars in the world are about to start talking. Well, here we are in beautiful Malibu, smiles John Bon Jovi, lounging back on his comfortable chair and gazing contentedly at the waves bearing down on the shore. It's early afternoon, the sun is out and John's got his shirt off. He's got a fag in one hand, an iced tea in the other and he's got company. Sitting next to him on the patio over his Malibu beach home, gazing out over the sandy shore and the deep blue ocean, 
uh, is his house guest for this afternoon, Joe Elliott. Def Leppard's renowned frontman and John's fellow rock superstar. The pair of them have spent the morning wandering along the beach. Now they're about to get down to the day's business. Between them is a table upon which sits two drinks, an ashtray and a tape recorder, which John has just activated. Why? Because John has volunteered to do our job for us and interview Joe for Kerrang. Have you ever done this before? Asks Joe as John presses play. Never, John laughs. He may be a virgin journalist, but John will undoubtedly prefer to chat to his rock and roll mate alone. So we leave them to it. Record company press officers take note. Mr. Bon Jovi begins by complimenting Mr. Elliot and his leopard bandmates on having produced their best album yet with slang. Interestingly, that's also the way we normally begin every interview. They start yapping about adapting and surviving in the ever-progressing 90s. Def Leppard have, um, after all, been pouring sugar on rock fans for 16 years now. Bon Jovi have kept the faith for 13. Both are still alive and leaving most of their former peers to eat their dust. Some of the reports on slang I saw said it was a great record, but we should consider changing our name, says Joe. In other words, there's a stigma around the name Def Leppard and our history, even though the music's good. It's a shame, but it's true, agrees John. That's American radio. It's in a funky place, as little as I pay attention to it. To me, it seems that if you're not fashionable, they can't put you on their station. But you guys have beaten that. You're on 150 stations in America, and it really looks like your album's gonna happen here. Joe. Yeah, although there was one classic comment about slang from some DJ in bumfuck Illinois, he said, ugh. But even on Radio 1 in Britain, which has gone all alternative now, our single sat nicely between Ash and Stone Temple Pilots. We're over the first hurdle, and that's really encouraging because success can go as quickly as it came. I mean, look at your poisons and your motley crews. You've got to grab it by the balls, just like you did. And 12 million albums later, Bon Jovi are everywhere. And that's what we've got to try and do as well. We're too good to disappear that quick, and we ain't going to roll over and die. John recognises 1992 as the year when a changing of the guard occurred in rock. Nirvana's Kurt Cobain became the spokesman of a new generation and out went flash bombs, big hair and merrily gorging on your own success. We were blind to it, John insists. We certainly weren't listening to Nirvana or anything as an influence when we were recording Keep the Faith. So when rock bands got pushed out of business, people would say to me, what about Def Leppard? I knew all the original bands would survive and all the lesser bands that the A&R guys created wouldn't be able to stand up. We were aware of Nirvana, Pearl Jammers and the Stone Temple Pilots in 92, says Joe. Then we eventually noticed how we were becoming redundant from a sound point of view. But anybody with half a brain would know that you guys, us and a couple of other rock bands are gonna survive. We're all prepared to realize, fuck it, you have to move on. On our new album, the title track is the only one which comes close to having a foot in the old sound. If you played Work It Out to someone without telling them who it was, they'd never know. Because I'm singing like Iggy Pop. John, I actually wondered if it was someone else singing. I was going to ask you if it was Vivian singing. Joe, yeah, well, the howling, screeching, 80s dog bunk singing is out. It gets tedious and it's fucking hard to keep going. It's not a question of following fashion. You just have to be aware of what's going on around you. We take forever to learn things and we always seem to be two steps behind everyone else but we always seem to sell more records than them, so I can't really complain. Now we're aware of what's going on, and we just have to make sure that we stay that way. The whole shoe-staring thing's over. The man from Bon Jovi is utterly bamboozled by his last expression. What's shoe-staring, he asks. All right, people who look at their feet. Joe, yeah, 
Now you've got Green Day, and whether you like it or not, it's fun. The presidents of the USA are fun. There's a smile on the face of grunge, and that's kicked a few people in the balls. I don't know what Eddie Vedder's going to do next time Pearl Jam come out. Is he going to be a miserable bastard again, or is he going to learn to smile? John. Yeah, he'll have to figure that out. But I think he's the real deal and a wonderful talent. I give him a lot of credit for saying he doesn't like success and then not making videos. He's not selling himself out. He makes his records. They sell zillions and he says, well, that's nice. I'm glad people like it. But I don't want to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. God bless him. Oh no, I love Pearl Jam. I really do Joe Stresses. And I understand why they're as big as well. There's a lot of stuff at the moment that you can like. But you won't be playing it in 20 years time. Like the Bush album. It's alright. But it's just fucking rehash Nirvana meets Pearl Jam. It's a good record, but in the same way that Poison's unskinny bop sounded good for six weeks, would you play that one now? John is unable to protest, shaking his head. Ask me if I'd always play your Slippery When Wet record or our Hysteria album or a Led Zeppelin record, and yes, I will, Joe continues, and I'll be playing the first Guns N' Roses album, Appetite for Destruction, forever. John drags on his fag and nods in his agreement. His interviewee is in full rant mode. But a lot of stuff like Poison was just tour bus fodder, Joe says. Then you take it home and it just gathers dust. Pearl Jam won't be like that and I hope the Stone Temple Pilots keep it together because I really like them. Wyland's got a major problem unfortunately and the rest of the band are pissed off at him. Yeah, I understand that, says John enigmatically. But a lot of these kids are in a different headspace, reckons Joe. It just seems to be a total drug culture, which it never was with us. I'm not saying nobody indulged now and again, but you either tried something and didn't like it, or you knew you just wouldn't live your life by it. The closest I got to a habit now is this bloody thing he says waving his cigarette around, and a glass of scotch now and again. Talk shifts to the decidedly unrock and roll topic of EQs, makes of amplifier, and how mega producer Mutt Lang helped to shape the sound on Leopard's globe-conquering pyromania and hysteria records. We'll not trouble you with it here. Eventually, Joe sums up the attitude behind slang. We wanted to go back to being a natural, happy-go-lucky fucking rock band again, he says. Maybe that's commercial suicide, but we've always got the songwriting. We're never going to do a Pantera album or a Barry Manilow one either, for that matter. But in the past, if we wanted to re-record a song, we'd have shat ourselves because it took six months. This time, it took six minutes. It was so exciting, he infuses. We felt like a garage band again. I mean, I'm 36 years old, man. So the feeling in the band is good now. John interjects. You're looking forward to going back on the road? Joe. Oh yeah, as you know, nobody joins a band so they can go and work in a studio forever. And I think we must have been in a studio longer than the Rolling Stones. And they're nearly 20 years older than us. But I got into this thing because I saw T-Rex on top of the pops and something inside me just went bang. That was it. Fuck soccer. Fuck everything else, I wanted to be a pop star. With the emphasis on pop, because at the time, that's all we heard in England. John detects some more current influences at work on slang. Absolutely, says Joe, almost spilling his iced tea in a spasm of enthusiasm. For a lot of this album, we've actually been listening to some of the new stuff. Just to get the vibe, we'd be playing Soundgarden's Super Unknown album and all of the Stone Temple Pilots' stuff while we were recording. As Joe finishes his sentence, John asks his waitress for another couple of drinks. This is not a luxury with which most Kerrang! writers are familiar. Once their glasses are replenished, John and Joe turn their thoughts to age, seeing as people like us are always calling them veterans and seasoned pros. John, it's a funny feeling. I don't feel old, but in the same breath, I feel like an elder statesman, you know what I mean? Joe, well, you've been there and you've done that, so you're entitled to it. 
People shouldn't look down on it either. I get annoyed at negativity because you're supposed to get better as you get older. Popularity revolves on a wheel as well. You go through a period where you're naff and suddenly you're very cool again. Paige and Plant are now very cool, but they weren't in 84. Now everyone's a Kiss fan, but in 89 they thought Kiss sucked. It's the same fucking band. Right now, in certain areas of the world, we suck. But maybe in 2001 we won't. People just get bored and decide to knock somebody. John. But we're both over that hump. In America, the song Keep the Faith woke us up by not doing so well. We ran into a brick wall because we'd gotten used to the success of Slippery When Wet and New Jersey. Even my solo album, Blazer Gory, was big. I really believed that Keep the Faith was a great song and it was going to work. And when it didn't, it made us hungry, humble and focused. It sounds like you guys have the same feeling. Joe, absolutely. Those three words sum it up. It's like, let's check the ego in at the fucking cloakroom here. Def Leppard start their slang world tour in Bangkok. As John points out, the band first played there 12 years ago. It's great to say that Leopard are still going there in 96, he tells Joe. Actually, in 84, did you think you'd still be here? You know what I mean? Wow. I never thought that far, says Joe. It's only now that you start thinking, good God, it's 16 years since our first album came out. I'm very comfortable with that, but there's a lot of 21-year-olds out there who probably think we're silly old men. But I remember when Ian Anderson from Jeffro Toll was the age I am now, and it doesn't seem that long ago. Yep, it's a long time since John Cumming, overall misty-eyed. You know, if we both stick with this music thing, smirks Joe, we might even make a living at it. John's still laughing when the tape goes click. We've reached the end of part one of the John and Joe show. Same time, same place, next week then. John and Joe were refereed by Jason Arnott. Do you know where you are? All I know is when I was here and I was 17, I was in the middle of the fucking jungle, baby! On location, this week, Paul Elliott reports on Reef's London club gig. Reef played a rare London club gig on Saturday, May 25th at the Pokey Splash Club in King's Cross. Predictably enough, the place was rammed and the vibe was wicked. The gig gave the band an opportunity to warm up for an appearance at the Essential Music Festival in Brighton on Bank Holiday weekend. Reef played second on the bill to Ocean Colour Scene on the Splash stage. Sounds a bit patronising to say this was a warm-up show, says Reef drummer Dominic Greensmith, sinking a post-show beer while slumped against a PA stack as roadies hurriedly pack away the band's gear. It was just a regular gig, really. I hope we can always play gigs in places this size. Reef are also using low-key gigs like this to knock some new material into shape. Work has already begun on the band's second album and the new songs are coming thick and fast. We've been writing during the week and playing a gig at the weekend so we can try out the new songs live, Dom explains. That way, when we're ready to record, we'll know all the new songs really well. Reef will be recording the new album in LA with producer George Dracaulius and at the Splash Club, the new songs sounded as good as anything on the first album, Replenish. Your Old, which is released as a single on July 22nd, is full of aggression and attitude, while Place Your Hand on Me reveals Reef's love of old soul music. The latter is still a working title, as vocalist Gary Stringer puts it, Place Your Hand on Me sounds a bit too Bon Jovi for us. Tonight's set list, mix these and other newies, higher vibration, summers in bloom, with old faves like Good Feeling and The Obligatory Naked. It was very relaxed tonight, says Dom, but in some ways it was very distracting because you could hear everything the crowd was saying. They were all shouting at Gary to get his t-shirt off and stuff. It was funny. 
We were all very relaxed and playing well tonight. Just as we came off, I was ready to do another full set again. Last week, we did in Bristol and we played for an hour and 20 minutes and it really did us in. It was so hot in there, I was really knackered. Did you hear the footy style chanting at the back of the room tonight? Yeah, Dom laughs. They're the blokes I play football with. No wonder these geezers were celebrating so noisily. The Reef footy team has just won a cup. If only their pool was as good as their football. A pre-gig pool match finished Reef 1, Kareng 2 after guitarist Kenwin House fouled twice on the black. Sucker. Enter Fanman. He's Kareng's number one fan. He's bought every issue. He's painted himself silver for us and he's talked to us from every corner of the world. He's Lars Ulrich and he's celebrated 600 issues of his favourite mag by reliving Metallica's greatest Kerrang moments with editor Phil Alexander. If there's one band that epitomises the unbridled spirit of Kerrang over the last 600 issues, it has to be Metallica. Like Kerrang, Metallica roared into life in 1981. Back then, they actually ran down to their local newsstands to buy each and every copy of Kerrang as it came out. Since then, they've inspired millions. They've weathered fickle trends and remained first and foremost music fans, exactly like Kerrang. So, to celebrate 600 issues of the world's greatest rock mag, it seems only fair to team up with one of the world's greatest rock bands for a journey through the past. Sitting in a plush London hotel, drummer Lars Ulrich picks out 15 pivotal moments in Metallica's history through the pages of Kerrang. Take it away, Lars. 1st of August 1983, Metallica's first major Kerrang feature followed the release of their debut LP, Kill Em All. Ulrich, James Hetfield, Kirk Hammett and bass loon Cliff Burton were introduced to the world by Kerrang scribe Xavier Russell, who prophetically stated, this is where the future of heavy metal lies. Lars. I remember doing the interview with Xavier and it was like, wow, we're talking to Kerrang. I remember reading the feature and being really upset. How come James got four fucking pictures when the interview was with me? Kerrang was totally the Bible. We used to get the magazine and go, look, there's one mention of Metallica on page 47. I have every issue. 2nd of December 1984. Following the release of their second album, Ride the Lightning, Metallica prepared to play the UK. Lars spray paints himself silver to celebrate the occasion. Lars, that photo is absolutely timeless. What possessed me to spray paint myself silver? I don't know, that was to coincide with the Lyceum show. Metallica manager, Peter Mensch, brought Def Leppard's Joe Elliott down. We did a picture of me and uh, Joe, which ended up in defunct Rock Weekly sounds. It could have all ended there as far as I was concerned. How could it get any better? 3rd of February, 1986. Metallica played Donington for the first time in 1985 before putting the finishing touches to their third album, Master of Puppets, in Denmark. Naturally, Kerrang was invited to hear the album first while the band was still in the studio. Lars. Being in sweet, silent studio in Copenhagen was dark, wet and snowy, but we actually had some money for the first time, so it meant that we didn't have to beg or go hungry. My favourite track on the record is probably Sanitarium, which we played last year at Donington. There's a lot of stuff on that album that's aged pretty well. 4th of May, 1986. Master of Puppets hits the top 40 in the UK. In the US, it took a little longer. Kerrang teamed up with then Syracuse, uh, New York, where they were supporting Ozzy Osbourne, just as things were going through the roof. Lars, people always ask me about the turning point and this was it. We went out in front of 15,000 kids every night. They were Aussie fans, which in America is pretty mainstream. But we realised then 
that they were getting it. I remember uh, co-manager Cliff Bernstein saying at the end of the tour, when you go home to San Francisco, you'll all be able to buy a house. We couldn't believe it. This was also part of the debauchery days. We could uh, pull girls like crazy. We would drink triple vodkas and coke as soon as we got off stage and there was a lot of drugs around. At that age, all that's on your mind is getting laid and that's what we did. 5th of December 1986. On September 27th 1986, while Metallica were travelling to Copenhagen, their tour bus skidded off the road. Cliff Burton was killed outright. The remaining trio decided to soldier on recruiting Jason Newkid Newstead, formerly of Phoenix, Thrash Band, Flotsam and Jetsam. Metallica played their first shows following Cliff's death in Japan. Kareem dispatched photographer Ross Halfin to capture the band's emotional return. Lars, the only thing that went on this tour was us fucking with Jason. It was pretty severe. It took him a couple of years to get over it. Every night we charged uh, the bar uh, tab to his room or throw all his furniture out of his room. Why? We felt Jason's initiation into the band shouldn't be without pain. There was one night in Osaka when me and Kirk sat up drinking. It was probably the night that I got the whole Cliff thing out of my body. We ended up in the bathroom and we were talking about Cliff. We got really sad and started crying. Then we got angry and we smashed the whole of the bathroom. After that, I think we were okay. 6th of April, 1988. Cliff was gone, but not forgotten. The band paid tribute to him with a Cliff and Wall video featuring tons of bootleg clips and early live footage. It was a warts and all affair that defiled the gloss of MTV-friendly poodle rock. Lars. A lot of people hold on to the memory of Cliff because he represents something to them which they don't think is there anymore. I don't mean this in a negative way, but these people hold the first three albums so dearly and Cliff is the icon of that era. Sometimes people even forget that we were also there. 7th of September 1988. And Justice for All enters the UK chart at number four. The band begin a UK tour with Danzig in support. Kerrang caught them rehearsing at Bingley Hall Stafford and witnessed the birth of their new mascot, a giant polystyrene version of the And Justice Woman from the LP sleeve. It is dubbed Doris by then Kerrang editor Jeff Barton. Lars. Doris was assembled and brought back down again during the show. On the British tour, it was still in its infancy and it didn't quite work. By the time we got to America, it really did look cool. It's a hard record to listen to for me. I remember sitting on the tour bus in Washington DC and we started playing the mixes. Three quarters of the way into the first track, Jason walked out. Big Mick Metallica's long-suffering and partially deaf soundman said, interesting mix, there's not a lot of bass on there, is there? We really should have changed our name from Metallica to the Hetfield Ulrich Project because that was totally our record. 8th of August, 1991. Metallica released the Black Album and played Donington with ACDC, Motley Crue, Queensryche and the Black Crows. The album enters the UK charts at number one. Lars, there was a cocky confidence about that record. The first demo we did for it had Enter Sandman, Sad But True, Wherever I May Roam and Nothing Else Matters on it. Then came Holier Than Now and Don't Tread On Me. I felt good after that. There were a lot of fights and struggles in the studio, but I was driven. Looking at pictures from then, it's painful because I was an asshole sometimes. 9th of October 1992. Metallica player co-headlined US tour with Guns N' Roses. A show at Montreal's Olympic Stadium went horribly wrong when James's hand was burnt by a misfiring pyro explosion. At the same gig, Axl Rose left the stage 15 minutes into Guns N' Roses set and sparked a riot. As the tour continued, Metallica and Guns N' Roses were at each other's throats. When Kerrang caught up with them in San Diego, there even seemed to be divisions within the Metallica camp. Lars when it comes to the relationship between me and James, that was probably the low point as far as our respect for each other is concerned. 
While I was sticking my nose up Gunz's ass, James was dealing with some major shit in his life that I found hard to come to terms with. It was the one point where I started wavering in terms of what we were about. By the end of that tour, we all bonded again because we realised that we do have it so fucking good. 10th of June, 1993. Metallica was set to play Milton Keynes Bowl on June the 5th. Lars announced that they were going to issue a live album. No one guessed it was going to be called Live Shit Benjamin Purge, a free CD and free video box set. Kerrang reported back from the German leg of the tour and lifted the lid on the feud between Axl Rose and Metallica. Lars. The guns thing was blown out of proportion. The whole thing with Axel was meant as a fucking piss take. I remember getting a call from Mench saying, Axel is going to sue you guys. I just laughed. But Milton Keynes was definitely one of the best shows in that whole European tour. It fucking rocked. 11th of July, 1993. Metallica wind up a mammoth two-year world tour. Kerrang joined them on the last day in Belgium at the Worcester Festival. Lars. That weekend was weird because we'd done that whole European tour on our own and we ended it on a festival bill with Neil Young and Lenny Kravitz. The whole thing that was going on backstage was funny. One of these big mirrors from the lighting rig was taken down and put to a different use. We went home, took a couple of weeks off, then me and James had to go and mix the live ship box set. That was our way of winding down. 12th of August, 1994. The release of live shit in December 93 was followed in 94 by the Shit Hits the Sheds tour. Crane celebrated with a 12-page tour exclusive and a naked centre spread of Kirk Hammett. Lars. This was the issue with the Kirk is Starker's stunner thing. I can't believe that you printed that picture. This was the most fun I ever had on tour. There was no other work other than uh, getting out there and playing. It was totally cool. 13th of July, 1995. At last year's Kerrang Awards, Metallica announced that they'd headlined Donington on August 26th. Kerrang broke the news first with another exclusive interview. Lars, this proved to me that we could go and do a gig of disenormity without having to rehearse or do 22 warm-up shows. I think that we totally pulled it off. I thought that the less than glowing Kerrang review that Jason Arnott wrote wasn't quite right. I felt it was a really good gig. Everybody thought it was good, but whatever. 14th of March 1996. The new album and those new haircuts. Kerrang was first with a full lowdown on the much-anticipated load. James declared, hairs become useless to us, fitting them. The bald, bont Kerrang scribe Paul Elliott was on hand to capture such words of wisdom. Lars, this is just us talking, as we always do to you guys first, and there's some new pictures for the whole world to see. Yes, hair had become useless to us. Having Paul over was cool, and he really was one of the first half-dozen people to hear the new tracks. I felt really good about playing them to people. You got a good idea where we were at. 15th of May 1996. To celebrate the release of the Until It Sleeps single, Kerrang flew to New York to catch up with Metallica as they finished load. Interrupting the proceedings, we forced Lars and James to adopt the famous Cray Twins pose. Amazingly, numerous people mistook the pair for comedy buffoons Hale and Pace. Lars, I first saw the Cray's film in the summer of 1990. I was totally mesmerised. Then I got the book Profession of Violence. When you guys came to us and said, let's do a session with you as the craze, we were like, let's line it up now. I guess that kind of brings us up to right where we are now, right? Right. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Lives and the first gig or concert or whatever you want to call them reviewed this week is Bush, supported by Sheer and Souls at the Astoria London on Wednesday, May the 22nd. Reviewed by Liz Evans, this concert gets 5 out of 5. 
Souls are from Sweden, and they're one of Bush singer Gavin Rossdale's favourite bands. Tonight they open by special request, and it's not hard to see why. Fronted by a woman with a truly astonishing voice, they specialise in loud, soft, loud guitar dynamics, clever rhythms and song structures, and above all, big tunes. You will be hearing more, so remember the name. Sheer are a much noisier affair. On record they sound disjointed and cluttered, but live they're sharp, witty and delightfully loud. Fronted by vocalist Audrey Gallagher, a small redhead in a little black dress and possessed with a voice the size of Everest. And featuring the baldest, stockiest bass player this side of wherever. Sheer kick out a set of ear-splitting spine tinglers. Audrey beats her hips and claps her hands and looks completely at ease. While the boys are all heads to the fretboard, rocking up big time. Northern Ireland certainly knows how to breed them. And so to Bush and the Grand Homecoming. With a crowd, most of whom were already settled in place by 7.30pm, psyched to the hilt, the atmosphere is thick and charged and downright pregnant with anticipation. Needless to say, the roar that greets America's biggest, brightest British superstars is stupendous and marks the start of a breathtaking show that has obviously been perfected on countless stateside stadium tours. Backed by a double screen of flickering images and bathed in one of the best light shows ever displayed on the Astoria stage, Bush crank it up and proceed to make Britain feel stupid for ever ignoring them. Gavin Rossdale's languid grace and effortless charisma makes him a natural frontman, while guitarist Nigel Paulsford and bassist Dave Parsons flank him with convincing strength. Bashing away at the back, drummer Robin Goodridge holds it all together and the combined effect of their efforts is hugely ambitious. Big on style and as powerful as a punch to the head from Mike Tyson. Amidst the delicious glory of old favourites like Machine Head, Little Things, Come Down and the delirious beauty of Alien, a couple of new songs are aired, proving that the second album will not be disappointing. Everything Zen, saved until the end, ripped through the venue like an old friend and angel dust, while Gavin's solo spot with Glycerine offers a moment of stillness in the storm. Bush hit home with an almighty wallop, so much more accomplished, so much more polished and daring in scope than the majority of their peers. They've honed their art, Till it shines. America can't get enough of them. Tonight with models dancing on tables upstairs and the entire crowd from the front of the stage to the doors at the back leaping in unison. It looks as if London can't either. The next review this week is for Everclear, supported by Hum and Feeder at the LA2 London on Thursday, May 23rd. Reviewed by Liz Evans again, this one gets 4 out of 5. It's only 7.30pm and already some poor kid is propped up on the pavement outside the LA2 covered in her own vomit and struggling to stay conscious. Not exactly the best advert for Everclear. Come on in, drink, throw up, die. But at least you know something's going on. As it turns out, quite a lot is going on, even at this unfeasibly early hour. Feeder, a band currently kicking up a well-deserved buzz are storming their way through a dreamy high-voltage set, coasting on hard-edged grooves like Stereo World and Swim. Bursting with Star Wars, spilling starry-eyed songs out of their pockets. Feeder will probably be playing the big Astoria next door this time next year. Place your bets now. Hum, on the other hand, bring the proceedings down to a comparatively stale level. Dealing in low-intensity rumbling drone rock, they provide a boring cloudy interval between two bright bands and should have either gone on first or frankly not bothered at all. Needless to say, it's something of a massive relief when Everclear take to the stage. Warming up with the ringing tones of Strawberry, they leap straight into a set filled with boundless energy, drowning out Hum's drizzle with emotive small-town sagas full of live-wire guitars and soulful lyrics. Craig Montoya plays like a man possessed, 
Lurching across the floor, bending shapes of his bass, our vocalist guitarist Art Alexakis can't hide the grin on his face as he belts out Summerland, Pale Green Stars, recent single Heroin Girl and the catchy refrain of You Make Me Feel Like a Whore. The crowd go nuts from start to finish. The sight of bodies hurling themselves off the stage moving Art to call for caution, although his words appear to fall on flat ears as nothing lets up until Everclear vanish. It's not hard to fathom the appeal. Clutching an arsenal of songs born from a wealth of turbulent experience, Art comes on like a living alternative to the Kurt Cobain route to rock and roll stardom. Cleaned up, determined to breathe and burst in with tunes, he now knows what to do with all the bad stuff that moves in on every ex-user's moods. Tonight's celebratory atmosphere is no accident. The next review this week is for the Manic Street Preachers at the Barrowlands Glasgow on Thursday, May the 23rd. Reviewed by Paul Elliott, this one gets 5 out of 5. No wonder the Manics are so nervous before they go on stage. Tonight is the first night of their first tour since guitarist Richie James went missing. Tonight the Manics face their own fans and tonight the Manic Street Preachers put the past behind them. The intro tape is an instrumental version of a design for life that gets the Glasgow fans singing along karaoke style as the band walk out. The Manics have never been ones for cheesy hellos. They get straight down to business with Australia, one of the very best tunes from the new album Everything Must Go. Most people reckon the new Manics album is their finest and this gig only underlines the point. Every one of the new songs holds up against established classics. There are so many great songs on the new record it's difficult to choose from the nine they play tonight. But as the set progresses through Anola Alone, A Design for Life and Kevin Carter, it becomes apparent that the Manics have made the best rock album of 1996. Add these songs to the likes of Yes and La Tristessa Durera and it's hard to argue with the claim of the band's booking agent Scott Thomas that the Manics are the best band in the world. Maybe we're getting a little carried away here but isn't that what music is meant to do to people? For two songs, frontman James Dean Bradford is left alone strumming an acoustic guitar. First he plays Small Black Flowers That Grow In The Sky, a harrowing song about zoo animals going insane in their cages. Then James does Raindrops Keep Falling On My Head. When he sings, I'm free, nothing's worrying me, you can't help feeling there's a message there for fans of both the Manics and Richie. The Manics end with You Love Us and No Encore. Nicky Wyatt doesn't bother to play his bass for the last song, preferring instead to rub a towel across the back of his neck in a mock strip tease. It's not all misery in the Manic Street Preachers, you know. And finally this week, we have Cannibal Corpse at the LA2 London on Monday, May 27th. Reviewed by Jason Arnop, this one gets 4 out of 5. One stage invader sticks in the mind. He jumps aboard and manages to viciously mouth the word fuck before leaping back into oblivion. Looking at this display and listening to black garbled folk loudly requesting tunes like fuck with a knife, a shocked MP would immediately campaign for Cannibal Corpse to be pushed into boxes and sent back home. But people are having fun here. And if you thought Cannibal Corpse gigs were populated solely by misogynist teenage boys, there are plenty of girls here too. Unless they've been tricked into coming and will be soon slaughtered. New singer George Fisher has his work cut out. Over the course of 65 minutes of malignance, he not only has to bellow like a warthog, but remember the equivalent of 10 Sean Hudson novels. A livelier frontman than his predecessor Chris Barnes, he's in the confrontational gesticulating Barney Greenway mould. The punchline is that Cannibal Corpse can really, really play well. Their songs truly are symphonies of sickness, with far more interesting structures and rhythms than the countless death metal bands who have perished before them. As long as there's Cannibal Corpse, there'll always be death metal yells of Defiant Fisher. 
just before the pulverizing encore of Hammer Smashed Face. The crowd gurgled, revved their chainsaws and set about killing each other for the last time. Fever Pitch The football event of the decade starts this week and your favourite rock stars are gagging for it. It is Euro 96 and we've got everyone from Metallica to the Mannix and Terrorvision to Reef to tell us what's going to happen when it all kicks off. James Dean Bradfield, Manic Street Preachers, where will you be watching Euro 96? From my armchair, I'm not going to any games, I might miss the England v Scotland game because it's my mate's wedding. Who will win Euro 96? Spain, they're a really physical side. Who will be the player to watch at Euro 96? That will become apparent. What will happen in the England v Scotland game? I can't stand watching England v Scotland games because Wales are never in major tournaments. I don't care. What is your own greatest football moment? Wales v Romania, the World Cup qualifier. Wales lost after Paul Bowden missed a penalty. That's when you realise that it's not just a game. It was the best atmosphere ever. When we got awarded that penalty, it seemed like a gift from God. But to lose at the end, it just felt like fate. Those scars will never heal. Lee Marklu of Terrorvision. Where will you be watching Euro 96? We're touring Europe in June, so that probably means we'll be watching it from a tour bus in Germany or some festival site. Who will win Euro 96? Denmark will win it again. They're unpretentious and will just get on with the job. Germany and Holland have the best teams, but they're not mentally right for it. God, I sound like Terry Venables. Who will be the player to watch at Euro 96? Paul Gascoigne could turn it on. What will happen in the England v Scotland game? If the weather's hot, there'll be a load of violence off the park. As far as the game goes, I think England will win 2-1. What's your own greatest football moment? I remember the time my dad took me and my brother up to Burnley to watch Leeds. It was back in 1975 and I vividly recall seeing this bloke walk past with a dart stuck in his head. But my greatest footballing moment has to be Leeds' glorious championship winning season in 92 when they beat Sheffield Wednesday 6-1 at Hillsborough. Mark Hamilton, Ash, where will you be watching Euro 96? On tour in Europe and America. Who will win Euro 96? Not England. What will happen in the England v Scotland game? The game will be abandoned because there will be a huge riot, the pitch will be ripped up and the goalposts smashed. Who will be the player to watch at Euro 96? Gary McAllister of Scotland. What is your own greatest football moment? Seeing Aston Villa beating Man United in the League Cup, or whatever it's called now, a couple of seasons ago. I've supported Villa since I was a kid because I saw them playing in some European competition once and I was impressed by Tony Daly because he was so fast. Barney Greenway of Napalm Death. Where will you be watching Euro 96? As per fucking usual, I won't be in the country, which I'm not best pleased about. I'll be in America trying to blag my way into someone's house to watch the games. Who will win Euro 96? Seeing as I'm not here, England will probably go on and win it. If they can keep their heads, they're good enough to do it. Who will be the player to watch at Euro 96? Gareth Southgate of Aston Villa, shockingly enough. What will happen in the England v Scotland game? There'll be a bit of rucking, but not as much as everyone expects. On the pitch, neither side will want to lose and it'll be deadlocked. What is your own greatest football moment? Aston Villa's European Cup final win against Bayern Munich in 1981 was glorious. Of late, I saw a video of the Villa players showing the Coca-Cola Cup to the fans at Wembley this year. That started the waterworks going. Joe Elliott, Def Leppard. Where will you be watching Euro 96? On a video somewhere in Southeast Asia. Who will win Euro 96? England. We've got home advantage. Or Holland. Or Germany. Who will be the player to watch at Euro 96? Gascoigne, because this time he'll deliver the goods to quote Judas Priest. What will happen in the England v Scotland game? Hopefully not a lot of idiotic violence, but don't hold your breath. 
What is your own greatest football moment? Let me tell you about the time George Best passed the ball to me during Tony Curry's testimonial game. I gave it him back just so I could say that I did. Or how about the time me and Iron Maiden Steve Harris played for England against Scotland at Wembley? Or how about that 20-yard volley into the top right-hand corner in front of 10,000 people in Dublin? Ah, those were the days. Lars Ulrich of Metallica, where will you be watching Euro 96? I think we'll be playing in Copenhagen the day before the first Denmark game, but generally I'll be watching as we travel around. Who will win Euro 96? Germany. Who will be the player to watch at Euro 96? Peter Schmeichel of Denmark. What will happen in the England v Scotland game? Whichever team scores the most goals will win. I'm sorry, I'm not really that familiar with some of the new players, so I'll sit on the fence. What is your own greatest football moment? Watching Chelsea on Match of the Day in the 70s. Seeing Denmark winning Euro 92. Gary Stringer of Reef. Where will you be watching Euro 96? On June 18, I want to be at Wembley for England v Holland. It's my birthday and I want to be there. Who will win the tournament? I'm not scared of playing Italy. I'm more scared of Germany or Holland. I'm going with England. But that's totally out of patriotism and nothing else. Who will be the player to watch in Euro 96? Dwight York, because he's got a nice smile on his face. What will happen in the England v Scotland game? England will beat Scotland. Don't know what the score will be. What's your own greatest football moment? Gary. Wolves v Coventry in the Coca-Cola Cup. 2-1, 2-0 up by half-time. Glorious goals. Feedback. And we start this week with the letter of the week. Me and two of my mates went to see Ash at Sheffield Octagon and what an amazing gig it was too. The band seemed to enjoy it as much as the fans and they played all their best songs, saving the excellent Kung Fu until last. We met the lads after the show and they were so nice, signing whatever we wanted and talking to us about anything. Enclosed is one of the many pictures I took. This one of Mark looking extremely cute. Thanks for a great night lads, don't stay away too long. Zoe Sheffield have you got a picture of yourself with your favourite rock star? Send it to feedback and be the envy of all your mates. Editor. I just bought the Wild Hearts' Fishing for Luckies for £13.49. I already had the previous version of the album, but the incentive of five new songs made the purchase worthwhile. Bollocks. If you exclude the four old songs, the sick of drug single and the point is 20 minutes of laughing at the end, what are you left with? 13 minutes of new material and two of those songs are only one minute long. I like the Wild Hearts, but who do they think they are kidding? Al Niven, Edinburgh. The new Metallica single is utter shite. Moby remixes, fuck off. What's happened to real metal these days? Karan covering the Prodigy was bad enough, but now this. Dave Mustaine, you are a prophet. You must have been able to see something coming. Suck my ass, Metallica, and anyone who disagrees with me can write in and say so. Chris, London. Mustaine a prophet? Come off it, Chris. Metallica sacked him and went on to make much better records than Megadeth. Editor. So the new Metallica artwork is controversial, is it? Crap. My son brings similar paintings home from play school most days. If any other bands out there with more money than cents wish to invest in similar artwork, give me a bell. I've got loads stuck to my fridge. Jason's dad, Northants. Dear Karang, challenge Quizmaster. Here's a little teaser for you. Question, is Prague the capital of Czechoslovakia? Answer, no. Prague is the capital of the Czech Republic. Is Kerrang living in the time warp? I thought the idea of the quiz was to make the contestant look silly, not yourself. Or did you mean to say, what was the capital of Czechoslovakia? I look forward to discovering the capital of Yugoslavia in the next issue of your educational journal. Jody Croydon. Fuck, 
What the fuck has happened to what used to be the coolest mag in the world? Does anyone actually care about those pretty ting boppers ash? And what the fuck are Def Leppard doing in Kerrang? It's doing my sodding head in. I agree that Kerrang should cover a wide range of music, but only to a certain extent, for fuck's sake. Right now, Kerrang is dominated by the likes of Bond Shit Jovi, Shite Leopard, and Alaris Monary Shit. It's gone so far that my Take That fan of a sister has begun flicking through Kerrang and reading the stuff in it. Bring back the Kerrang we know and love. A pissed off fucking metal fan. Make up your mind. First you want Ash, Leopard and Alanis out of Kerrang. Then you want a wide range of music in the mag. Editor. So they are only doing Donington. I've waited a long time to see Kiss. But if they can't be bothered to play any other shows, you won't see me there. Sitting through hours of shit groups before they come on. Stroll on July 6th, 7th and 9th when I'll see a band who always look after their fans. Thank God we've still got Bon Jovi on this planet. Martin Matthews, Ammonford. Never mind the bollocks. Cops, Nazis, rednecks and Irk Coke vendors. They've all been on the wrong end of rancid steel toe cap Doc Martens. Morak joins the best punk rock band on earth in Hamburg to find out how they fought the law and won. Rancid bassist Matt Freeman is being stared at by indignant guests as he sits in the plush bar of his Hamburg hotel. He's swapping old punk tales with the band's tour manager Fitzroy and myself over a few beers. The best live punk rock band in the world are enjoying a night off in Hamburg. Their mohawked vocalist guitarist Tim Armstrong has hit the Reaper Barn, the city's infamous red light district, with some of the rancid road crew. His singing guitar playing colleague Lars Fredrickson is playing cards in the room with the rest of the crew. Drummer Brett Reed has crashed out. Matt Freeman has just finished the one about his old band, the infamous Californian ska punks Operation Ivy getting beaten up in some godforsaken town in Hicksville, USA. Now he's recalling how he had his nose broken and his teeth chipped when he had a microphone smashed into his face. Happily, the mere sight and sound of Matt Freeman is enough to outrage normal people. While MTV tries to sell the world a nice, clean, sterile version of punk, Rancid know full well that it can get a bit rough out in the real world. 20 years after the Sex Pistols first battled out anarchy in the UK, you can still get a kick in for looking weird. The next morning, when Lars is out walking, he's stared out as if he were an alien for having leopard skin coloured hair. When he attempts to buy a coke, the service is surly and rude. Rancid, you see, are the real thing. Punk is all about being yourself, being an individual, says Lars later. And there are still people, rednecks, who don't like you just for being what you are. I remember walking down the street in my hometown and getting rocks and bottles thrown at me by high school kids driving home from school. It's just one of those things. Um, but we don't live in Nebraska or Texas. We live in Oakland and Berkeley now, where things like that are sort of tolerated. But Lars hasn't missed the fact that the odd swastika symbol has started appearing here and there in Hamburg again. There are still Nazis in some places these sides. They don't like you because you represent everything they don't want the white race to be. You know, we like black music and we don't have a problem with male or female, black or white or Asian, gay or straight. Even today, in 1996, that's threatening to people just about anywhere in the world. The four members of Rancid have had a long haul to the top. They spent years playing shitholes in smaller bands before their third and easily their finest album and out come the wolves took them into the US arenas. They'd been through all the usual police harassment, having undercover cops in their gigs, getting their bus pulled over for no reason. We were in this windowless van and we got pulled over in Mississippi, recalls Matt. This is in the heart of the deep south with all these fucked up towns and I thought we were gonna get uh, the chain gang. It was like, you boys got anything you shouldn't have in there because I got a dog and it's a mean dog. 
So it was no surprise when at Rancid's now legendary gig at London's Camden Underworld last year, one young punk was seen jumping up and down on the roof of a police van. Or when police tried to interfere with the Days of Chaos punk festival in Hanover a few months later, there was a three-day riot that made international headlines. If punk is dead, then it spawned a poltergeist complete with a set of rattling chains. I believe if you've really got to use violence, then you've got to do it, says Lars. If the cops are out there beating the hell out of you for no fucking reason, then fight back. But at the same time, I don't want any of us who uses the word to encompass punks in general to get hurt. Then again, if I didn't have a passport and a fear of being deported, I'd probably be out there with you. But to go out and start a fight is pretty ignorant. If we see things get out of hand, we'll say something about it, whether it's some dickhead trying to rip off a girl's shirt while she's on top of the pit, or it's just getting crazy. We don't want a situation where shows get closed down because of that shit, and Matt. You get a bunch of drunk idiots doing stupid fucking shit, and okay, it's punk. But there goes the scene, you know? See you later. There's no place to play anymore. At tonight's magnificent gig at the Fabric, an old converted bomb factory, there are no such problems. It's just a bunch of kids having a good time and maybe listening to the lyrics and maybe taking a few thoughts home. Most of them weren't even born when the Sex Pistols split and dear old Sidney Vicious topped himself. Of course, it'd be stupid and narrow-minded to think 70s punk should be relevant to them. But what of the bandwagon jumpers, the people who are punk one minute and whatever's fashionable the next? Does it really matter, shrugs Lars. It's almost like the more of us the merrier. If they're out of it in another year, then you know their true colours. The way we see it is, give people a fair shake. If you fuck with us, then we'll try to kill you. And if you're good to us, then we'll love you forever. But that's just a way you have to deal with people on a human level. Whether they're punk rock or they wear Adidas shirts and go to raves. I don't like um, exclusionary things, nods Matt. That's why I got into punk, because you could be accepted and do what you wanted. I've been excluded from shit all my life, because I was a fucked up kid and I didn't get along with all the cool people. Now they try to be fucking nice to me, dude. They think you're cool because you're in a band, but I still don't like them. What are the best and worst things to come out of punk? The worst thing was the whole punk rock rulebook, spits Lars. The whole thing of you do it this way or you're not punk. That's bullshit. You do it anyway. That's what makes you punk. When you start dictating about what punk rock should be, then you're just as bad as Adolf Hitler. What are you going to do? Put Green Day Rancid and Offspring in a fucking tank and fucking burn us? If you don't like us, don't go and see us. The best thing he continues, lighting the fag and losing the battle to quit smoking, is the individual sense. You know, going to a place where you can release some tension from your work week by either playing in a band or going to see a show. It's a place for people to feel like they belong to something. If we didn't have punk rock, we'd probably be in jail or something. We want to put back what we've got out of it because we're grateful for having it. Rancid are repaying their debts with interest. They live and breathe punk rock. Aside from knocking out some of the greatest music you could wish for, they hassle to get local bands on their bills and their articulate ambassadors for the scene. They've gone from opening up for MDC in front of 100 people at London's powerhouse to selling out Brixton Academy without forgetting their roots or abandoning their principles. Rancid couldn't act like rock stars if they tried. The reason why we love punk rock and have been around it for the majority of our lives is because there was no weird idol worship, says Lars. You're the same as the band. We can't stress enough that we're no different from you. We're music fans. We love rock and roll and punk rock. And we shit and we piss and we eat and we get horny. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record. It's so heavy, it couldn't get off the turntable. We now come to albums. The first album reviewed this week is Mataleo by Biohazard. This one is reviewed by Jason Arnop, and this one gets 3Ks. 
Like all genres, this thing we call rap rock has bowled itself down to a handful of true diehard survivors. Hearing someone rap over a weighted guitar riff was once a joltingly fresh revolution. Now it's as commonplace as punk thrash and death metal eventually came to be. Few have done, or indeed do, in nearly as well as Rage Against the Machine. That band's new album might for the most part tread water, but it also kicks up the occasional tidal wave. Of the rest, Manhole are the wired new kids on the block, and Downset could well do something special with their forthcoming second disc. Where does that leave Biohazard? Although still a big name, their progress has been slowed by a continual failure to weave magic in the studio. Their first two albums weren't up to scratch in the production department, while their third 1994 State of the World Address sounded better but ultimately failed to deliver the goods song-wise. Songs have never been Biohazard's forte. If there's one thing you can count on from Biohazard, it's a bruisingly brilliant live show. Songs which sing flat and uninspired on disc light fires when the band hit the stage. They'll get a partisan audience springing around every time, no problem. Mataleo is probably the best recording Biohazard have made, but it's still hard to see it as anything other than a collection of average to great songs, which will then go on to boot major but live. Admittedly, this is the first Biohazard album which does go some way to mirroring the force of their shows. Opening track Authority is something of a killer. Unusually immediate for the Hazard, it's also notable for managing to cram 12 fucks into each chorus. Probably not the single then. There are definitely other attitude-dripping tunes worth a mention like Control, Waiting to Die, Gravity and The Excellent Cleansing. But songs like Modern Democracy and Better Days meander around with terrorist chant free called Hardcore, which we've heard a thousand times before, while others like Fawn simply pass unnoticed. Sadly, Biohazard have made this album three years too late. It's in no way bad, but in 1996 it's got some serious competition. The closing Sabbath-esque in vain may be an interesting departure for the band, with Evan Seinfeld getting all deep-throated and moody towards the end, but Pantera have just come out with the monstrous Suicide Note Part 1. No contest there. Biohazard will always be remembered for great achievements like getting over 100,000 people bouncing in shit at last year's Dynamo Festival rather than re their recorded output, and Mataleo looks unlikely to change that fact. Now that's hard reality. The next review this week is for the album Swan Song by Carcass. Reviewed by Malcolm Dome, this one gets 2Ks. How ironic that the album which was supposed to gain Carcass worldwide recognition has ended up as their final act. When the Merseyside signed to Columbia in April 1994, it really did seem as if they were about to establish themselves as a major force on late 90s metal. After years of struggle, their vast potential and talent was at last being recognised. Nothing could stop them, except for the apparent confusion within Columbia over precisely what they'd signed. It's all very well teaming up with a major label, but if that label hasn't the faintest idea how best to market and promote the band, what is the point? Carcass soon found this out when they proudly delivered Swan Song, only to find the powers that be at Columbia less than infused by what they were being asked to release. Ultimately, a compromise was reached. Carcass were allowed to walk free and return to Earache, thus Swan Song sees the band ending their near-decade-long career on the label where it all began. So, were Columbia right? Is Swan Song the wrong album at the right time? In a way, the answer is yes to both questions. Swan Song isn't as good as any of the band's classics, Symphonies of Sickness, the fantastically titled Necroticism, Decanting the Insalubrious, it isn't even on the par with their last album, Heartwork. At times, it sounds closer to an average Megadeth record than anything else. 
It's not difficult to appreciate what Carcass were trying to do this time around, opening up their brutal sound and style to other influences, growing up musically, flexing their lyrical muscles, but for the most part it hasn't got sufficient light and shade to really take the band to the next level. Everything sounds like everything else, leaving little room for the music to manoeuvre and breathe. Only rock the vote and keep on rotting in the free world half half comedy ed do justice to the Carcass tradition of firing up melody with a fierce attack, otherwise it all sounds rather like a band confused by what they're trying to do and falling flat on their face as a result. Maybe it's just as well that Swan Song is Carcass's farewell. They were never meant to sound like this. Next up we have Sensefield with their album Building. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this one gets 5Ks. While this year's finest Brit rock offerings, Ash Baby Chaos, Terrorvision, Joyrider, etc., have celebrated the thrills, spills, and pills available to youth in the 90s, our Yank friends seem determined to persist with the idea that we're all a bunch of flies fornicating blindly on the dung heap of life and that we might as well consign ourselves to this misery. If life was truly as doom laden as these shrill harridans insist, we'd be topping ourselves left, right, and centre instead of sucking in every last drop of end of millennium hedonism. Thank God then for Sensefield, a band who can illuminate the brighter side of life without resorting to hippie bollocks or tired platitudes. About bloody time. Sensefield are a young Californian emo core act, that's emotional hardcore to you and me, who articulate the simple pleasures of life in clear ringing tones. Their sound falls somewhere between the adrenalised dynamism of Fugazi and the raw emotion of Pearl Jam. They're the sort of band Eddie Vedder could put together if he wasn't lumbered with his classic rock bore chums. Building is a special album, crammed with blinding tunes and gorgeous heartfelt melodies, at a time when turgid, overblown whingers like Seven Mary Free and Alanis Morissette are considered soulful and spiritual merely because of their ability to drag strangled vowels out for a week and a half, it's wonderfully refreshing to hear a band who can deliver something meaningful and evocative in three minute bursts of power and passion. Guitarist Chris Evanson and Rodney Sellers always take fresh, inventive options while vocalist Jonathan Bunch manages to deliver poignant personal lyrics without sounding like a big girl's blouse. No mean feat in itself. The tunes here are massive, moving, melodic and muscular. Overstand and Outlive the Man both under two minutes long are pretty rhythmic spurts of positivity and purity. Fiesta builds from staccato picking into a monstrous groove with choppy spiralling guitars and an oddly appropriate na 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 vocal refrain. While No Man's Land both sweet falsetto vocals and deliciously driving riffing. The words dogs and bollocks spring instantly to mind. At every turn, huge harmonies are waiting to slap you upside the head. Everyone I see piles on glorious layers of harmony vocals and defies you not to shout along, while the title track comes on like Fagazzi's cheery cousins, featuring chiming, climbing guitars and an insistent uplifting vocal. You're the only one who understands the weight of this moment, the weight of this day. Bunch wails on wandering time with the joy of a man who's just discovered a soulmate. These are live forever, life is sweet blasters and you'll want to lose yourself in their joyous depths for weeks. The freshest breeze to drift across the Atlantic in ages. Next we have the album 4am Friday by Avail, reviewed by Paul uh, Travers, this gets 3Ks. Avail are as blunt and to the point as a bad fist. And this, their third album, utilises almost every weapon in their hardcore armoury. Order, an armchair fix, a short violent blast of venom, while Tuesday is a shout-along anthem built on the finest hardcore foundations. 
At their most melodic, they come across like synth or shelter. At their most fearsome, they sound like sick of it all. A worthy album, but a veil lack a strong enough identity to really stand out from the crowd. And the last album reviewed this week is Tragic Kingdom by No Doubt. This one is reviewed by Razel and this gets 3Ks. A chick-led Californian quintet out to sprinkle a little sunshine with sugar-coated vocals and reggae-laced pop songs. Let's see now. Imagine the pretender's Chrissy Hind, backed by a band consisting of ex-members of Blondie and the Specials, and you'll be near to scoring a bullseye with no doubt. Initially instant and yummy, but after a while it does get a touch candy floss overkill. Yep, as much as no doubt will get your taste buds bopping, your dentist would not approve. Charts and the number one album this week is Everything Must Go Manic Street Preachers, number one in the singles chart until it sleeps Metallica and number one in the indie LPs chart is 1977 by Ash. The readers top 10 this week comes from Harv of Ricelip. Their chart begins one Alice said Screaming Trees, two Negative Creep Nirvana, three In Night Fling Girls Against Boys, four Touch Me I'm Sick Mud Honey, five Scrawl and Scream Swerve Driver, six Welcome to Planet Motherfucker White Zombie, seven Interstate Love Song Stone Temple Pilots, 8. I know you're fucking someone else type of negative, 9. Faggot Corn and 10. One more bottle by Paw. Star Tracks comes from Kirk Hammett of Metallica. His chart begins 1. Live at the Plug Nickel, Miles Davis, 2. Black Rose, Finn Lizzie, 3. Definitely Maybe Oasis, 4. Transformer, Lou Reed and 5. Greatest Hits by Al Green. Next week in Kerrang! Back Issues, the 100 coolest rock stars ever and how they changed your life. Plus Slayer, Manics on the Road, Rancid, Dog Eat Dog, Jovi and Leps Part 2, and Metallica. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next Wednesday as usual. And here's to 600 issues of Kerrang! Bye for now.